Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Rapham Podcast has discussed this before. Determining the effectiveness of therapies in pain medicine is an important healthcare policy exercise. This determination has implications for access to care, costs, and outcomes. For those of you new to pain medicine, it is common for interventional procedures that involve implanting devices or ablating tissues and nerves to undergo a prognostic test prior to the definitive treatment, such as radiofrequency ablation. If patients are responders to those prognostic tests, they can then go on to the more permanent procedures. Definitions of responders and how many prognostic tests are necessary has been the source of confusion for many people. Today, we're joined by Dr. David Provenzano. Uh, Dr. Provenzano is president-elect of the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine. Currently, he is an adjunct associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. He is on the executive committee of the Western PA Surgery Center. He is a critical member of our editorial board on RAPM. We're also joined by Dr. Joseph Leach. Dr. Joseph Leach is a native of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and graduated from Washington and Jefferson University in 2020. He obtained his degree in Bachelor of Arts in Biology. He completed two years of internship work with Dr. David Provenzano at Pain Diagnostics and Intervention, located in Pennsylvania. In August of 2022, uh, Joseph started his next journey. He is now attending Kent State University of Podiatric Medicine, located in Independence, Ohio. He is an active member with the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons. So thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. David was the lead author in a provocative study evaluating the value of adding a second lumbar medial branch block in the consideration of performing an ablation procedure. In a single-centered retrospective review, 224 patients with two consecutive local anesthetic-only blocks with greater than 50% pain relief on the first block from September 2013 to June 2019 were examined. From the practical setting, the major goal of the research was to see if requiring a second injection changed the ultimate treatment course for an individual who received at least greater than or equal to 50% or greater than or equal to 80% on the first block. Okay, that was a lot, but uh, so let's just, let's start this off. So Dave um, um, and Zef, can you tell us a little bit more about the background controversy regarding how many blocks are necessary before lumbar medial branch ablation, the more permanent procedure? What are the major kind of like insurance player issues, uh, policy issues that are involved? Sure. So I'll take a couple step back there. So when we're looking at pain procedures, as you discussed, one of the biggest challenges is that we're dealing with a subjective variable, pain response. And so we have to select patients for our procedures often based on these subjective pain responses. And it's really challenging. So if I come back and I look at something called facet, you know, facet arthritis or pain from the facet joints, unfortunately, we don't have MRI findings. We don't have a history and physical examination finding that really guarantees 
success with our procedures or appropriately selects those patients. So for example, if you have a total knee patient, you look at their x-ray, they have really bad arthritis, you know that if you go ahead with the knee replacement, they're going to do well, you know, a large percentage of the time. But we don't have that with low back pain. So we end up doing diagnostic or what we would appropriately call prognostic blocks to select these patients. And so uh, I'll take it even a further step back. So we have, as you know, we've published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine uh, consensus practice guidelines on facet joint mediated pain for the lumbar spine and the cervical spine. And one of the most debated areas when we're developing these recommendations was how many blocks do you need prior to progressing forward to radiofrequency ablation. And so the current recommendation from insurance companies is two blocks. And most recently in 2021, Medicare came out with that you needed two blocks with at least greater than or equal to 80% pain relief. However, our good friend, Dr. Steve Cohen, has uh, looked at this also in the past, and he's a big believer of one block is enough. And so when I looked at some of the original work published on radiofrequency ablation, if you looked at individuals that had zero blocks or one block or two blocks, there was a higher number of individuals that responded when you had two blocks. Your, your, the responders did better, right? So those are number, the people that had the procedure, they did better if they had two positive blocks compared to people in the zero one group. So I was always personally a big believer in two blocks, that if you had two positive blocks, there was a highly likelihood that you would do better with this radiofrequency ablation. Well, then after we had these consensus guidelines and practice guidelines, I said, I want to go back and look at my own research and, and my own patients and say, did this second block change what we were going to do? Did it change actually the ultimate treatment for these patients, which was a radiofrequency ablation? So we looked at individuals that had at least 50% pain relief on the first block, and that meant they would have met some criteria based on our new recommendations, that would be the new criteria, the clinical recommendation to have this ablation. And I said, did the second block actually change uh, what happened? And so we had great people like Zeph Leach, Dr. Jason Kilgore and Dr. Sugden who helped us look at this and I'm very thankful for all their help. And so what I would say, Brian, back to your original question, just to give a little background, that's why we looked at this. And then the, the challenges now that we have, that is insurances, when they have covered determination policies, they are requiring two blocks. And so we as a healthcare field, as practicing clinicians, have to understand, is this second block needed? Because it's not without risk. It's not without associated costs. And it's, not a, it's, not, it's also associated with humanistic burden. So the, the real purpose of this research was, what is the value of the second block? Does it change what you're going to do? Zeph, would you add anything to that? Uh, the only thing that I would have to add is kind of just touch a little bit on the factors that you spoke of earlier. Um, and one thing that you kind of touched on was the subjective pain response. Um, as you stated, there's no definitive test that can go and say that a patient is suffering um, from this low back pain or something other causing the pain. Um, and some factors that um, kind of have to be taken into account is whether or not the patient understood what the procedure was going to cover. Um, that's a very large factor that has to be taken into account. Um, and then based on that, whether patients um, understand how to fill out the pain diary. Solely just by that, I mean just focusing on the pain associated with the uh, procedure. So basically just focusing on the low back pain and not any other pains that they might have. 
Well, those, those are great comments and thank you both. And I want to just step back for a second for our listeners and our readership to know that one of the reasons why I think the peer review process was pretty excited about um, uh, this submission was because it kind of challenges the status quo a little bit. And that's, that, that always serves for, for, I think, an exciting, uh, exciting read. And uh, you're kind of early on in your your uh, your research uh, journey, uh, Zeph. But 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 that that is a good uh, I think uh, concept when you're planning research. If everybody thinks you should doing be doing something, and you kind of have a hunch maybe that somebody's wrong, that's a good story. So really, hats off to both of you for uh, for tackling uh, this topic, and not to mention that it has you know massive uh, implications for, like, as you said, David, from the human standpoint, resource standpoint. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, this was challenging the status quo of my own thought process. As I stated before, I was a believer in two blocks that based on some of the previous research published that if you looked at individuals that were selected for RFA based on, you know, obviously if you look at, if you say you just went right ahead with radio frequency ablation, you had no blocks, just went right ahead and you looked at the success rate of those individuals, or you look at individuals that had one block and you looked at the success of those individuals, or you looked at individuals that had two positive blocks there was suggestion that individuals that had two positive blocks did better than the zero and one group. However, and you probably have, but the problem is you have false negative and false positive blocks also. And so that that's a challenge with these blocks. And so basically we want to take a step even before that and say, when you have a second block, we understand that if people have two blocks, they have two positive blocks, they maybe do better with RFA, but the real question is, does the second block change what you're going to do? And, and I would say the other thing is super interesting coming from an acute pain medicine side, which is a lot of our, our listeners and uh, our readers, this idea of have, having to have a 50% response in the first place is like really provocative to me. We're really excited if we get a 10, 15% effect size when we do something for acute pain. So I'm just kind of curious this standard, I think this is, I mean, this is really interesting, this standard to actually even be considered to to, to progress along the treatment pathway uh, is pretty is pretty uh, pretty conservative, wouldn't you say? Yeah, no, I think it's very high. And if you look at the new Medicare guidelines that came out in 2021, this 80% cutoff, greater than or equal to 80%, that's a really high bar to satisfy. And the reality is, as uh, Zeph was talking about a little bit before, people have back pain for many things. I mean, you may have a bad disc, you may have bad facets, you may have sore muscles. So the like setting that bar at 80%, as we show in our study, you're going to reduce the number of radiofrequency ablations substantially by at least 40%. Now, that could be the purpose of that. They want less utilization. However, you are denying a therapy to people that we know will benefit. Dr. Stephen Cohen, I mentioned his name before, has done a study showing that when you look at higher cutoffs than 50%, there's not a substantial difference in outcomes. So an individual that has 80% relief on a block, the chance of them responding is no higher than someone that has greater than 50% relief. And and actually, when when you lower cutoffs, when you're talking about population health, it has uh, dramatic implications. For instance, if you change the the definition of prediabetes, and we saw this, and you know, if you look at a normal distribution of the of the country, you make one little notch to the left on that graph, and suddenly you have millions and millions and millions of more people that are going to be exposed to having to buy things. You know, so um, so it's super interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that that insight. Um, you know, I, I think we're probably in a good spot here to get you two to summarize the key findings of the study. 
Uh, and it also, when you do that, if you don't mind to remember, just to comment on the on the differential findings uh, when you actually stratified um, by the response to the first injection. We already talked about you had the two groups. You had the 50% and then you had the 80%. So uh, that's super uh, interesting to, to get insight into the difference there. In this study, in order to be in the population, you had to have at least a positive block on the first block. So you had to have at least greater than or equal to 50%. So it's really important for the listener and the reader to understand that. We're taking a group of individuals that by definition, prior to the new Medicare guidelines in 2021 of greater than or equal to 80%, and based on even some new ins- uh, some of the existing insurance requirements for other payers, that if you had greater than 50%, greater than or equal to 50% pain relief, that's considered a positive response. So we took that individual that on the first block had greater than or equal to 50%. And then we said, what ultimately happens to those individuals when we look at them? And we also looked at that group, that first group of 224, and we said, how many of those people had greater than or equal to 80% on the first block? So we looked at them again, if they had greater than or equal to 50% and greater than or equal to 80%, right? So obviously some of that had greater than or equal to 80% also had greater than or equal to 50%. And when you look at that, if you look at what happens to them on the second block, you realize the utility of a second block is pretty poor. So if you had 10 people, about eight of them are going to get the same exact in, in the same categorical response as they did on the first block. So you basically put 10 people through a block with eight of them basically getting the same categorical response where it would have been a positive response and two getting excluded. So you put all these people again through a second block for only two to have some different treatment outcome. David, I just want to highlight that that is a, the, from my perspective, the key finding here. Correct. It's, it's, it's a major finding. So when you say to yourself, you're going to, you know, just, or even you take a hundred people, take a hundred people and they, you know, those 100 people have had greater than or equal to 50% relief on the first block. And you say, okay, what happened to that person on the second block in the study? And again, this was before we had the Medicare guidelines. So we weren't looking for 80% relief. We're looking for 50% relief. So I know these results. This is what we got. And what you see is that, for example, when you look at that 50 to 79% pain relief group, only 22.4% ended up in a lower category. That means they were less than 50%. So basically eight out of 10 people had a second block that did not differ from the first block and did not change the ultimate treatment course. So we as physicians, healthcare providers, payers, major major, uh, insurers like CMS have to make the decision whether a second block is really worth it when 80% 80% of the time, approximately 80% of the time, nothing changes. Would it be possible if someone got a, a like a, a nice response on the first injection and then didn't on the second and you, and you said, okay, you know, sorry, we're not going to proceed to a permanent ablation. But the second injection will say was a 20%, you know, relief, which is still big by acute pain medicine standards, just so you know. Um, is it, could, could somebody just pay for that themselves and would you do it? Like, like, I mean, like, I understand what Medicare is saying, but like, if you as a physician, and I, I, we're going to come back to this later, but if you, if you as a physician were happy with the two responses and someone and money's not an issue, would you, would you medically do it? Right. So if I, if I had someone, so if I'm understanding correctly, 
with the question. If you have someone that has what we would cause a positive response based on a, a defined categorical definition of 50%, greater than or equal to 50%, they did well on the first block, they met that, and then on the second block, for some reason, they didn't make it. They, they didn't make it. So what I would say to that patient, Brian, is, okay, you got 20 to 30% relief on that block. You may not do well with the ablation. These are prognostic selection tools. My question to you is, did you have any, you obviously thought it was valuable. Why did you think it was valuable? If you thought it was um, valuable, even at 20 to 30%, tell me why you thought it was valuable. Were you functioning better? Were you moving better? Um, I may consider it. Now, obviously, that patient would have to be a, a self-pay patient for that procedure because they're not making insurance requirements. But I, th- I do think there are some people that may have a false negative block. And I do think, you know, Zeff did a beautiful job running our uh, pain research program. I will tell you, these pain scores, Brian, you know, we're in large industry-supported clinical trials. I, these pain scores are amazingly variable. And you have to remember, people aren't grounded all the time. They don't understand what they even said the first time. And so there's a lot of challenges in these pain scores. So to answer your question, a long-winded answer, yes, if I had someone that had really good relief on the first block, some reason didn't have good relief on the second block, I may consider it, but I may not consider it too. It really would depend on if there was something else that they thought really was beneficial to the block that wasn't captured in a pain score. It's 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 refreshing to hear, you know, you can potentially still go on with a, the doctor patient relationship the way we were we were trained. Now, what about the what about the um, the second category? Right. So if you took that same group of 224 patients and you said, okay, we wanted to look at the number of individuals that are greater than or equal to 80% on the first block. What you see is the number of individuals that have greater than or equal to 80% on that second block is also really, really high. Only 18.7% would not have greater than or equal to 80% on that second block. So again, basically eight out of 10 people get the same response. Furthermore, what we really found interesting when we looked at this was that if you had greater than or equal to 80% relief on the first block, your chance of having greater than or equal to 50% relief on that second block was really, really high. Only 3% of the population didn't meet that criteria. So that actually brings me into that, this kind of the next question, and maybe this kind of explains it. And uh, and I this was a little confusing to me, and I don't know if we're going to figure it all out here, but you actually did a correlation analysis between the first and second block statistically. And, and you, call, you found a relatively weak correlation, not something super strong, which for some of the listeners might seem kind of contradictory because you're saying, well, you know, you know, it's going to be the same categorical response uh, on the second ejection, eight out of the 10 people, but that's categorical. And if you actually put a, a number on it, you may not be as tight as you think. Do you want to just comment on that? Yeah, so that's great. So if you talk to Dr. Sugnan about this, she helped us a lot with the stats. And when you look at this, this is, you explained it exactly how we would explain it. So if you look at the you know, the Spearman R was 0.45. So you have a moderate correlation, but it's not really that strong, like you said. However, that's looking at continuous data. So you may, just as Zeph said, like you may not have, just because I have 80% on the first block, doesn't mean I'm exactly going to have 80% on the second block. But maybe I have 85, maybe I have 86%, maybe I have 90%. What you can do is, when you take that and look at the categorical data, you take the continuous data, which has some noise, obviously, right? It has noise. And we look at it from a categorical response. 
and we didn't make up these categories, right? So these are categories. We didn't, we didn't go on a fishing expedition. We set the categories based on insurance requirements. So the new Medicare guidelines are greater than or equal to 50, uh, 80%. So that's one category. And then positive response before has been defined as greater than or equal to 50%. And when you look at it from a categorical response, that that is not as noisy and you really see that strong association. That's that's just a wonderful explanation, and I, also I want to make this uh, point clear for our for our readers and our, our researchers. David did uh, the exact right thing, as he presented data in both ways, and so then the reader can decide what you know they're, they're most interested in. But I would say that the categorical stuff is the most important because it's this, it's the clinically relevant uh, categories, and they were defined already, which is easy. But let's say they weren't. I would encourage a lot of the researchers to try to define clinically meaning categories and. That can help you with your analyses and present the data uh, to to the to the readers because sometimes it's very hard to interpret like an R number on a correlation coefficient. It's much easier to look at proportions. So good 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 that you did that. And I want to really uh, salute you on that. Yeah, thanks. And actually, we really want to thank the uh, reviewers of the manuscript because they made it much stronger. So I think when you go through a review process, the um, there was a lot of recommendations to really strengthen data presentation. Uh, and we very much appreciated that. Oh, thanks a lot, Dave. And I know we did we did spend a lot of time. And you know that's one thing that uh, I think Rapham does offer. We can't do it on all manuscripts, but uh, we will definitely be able to help some authors with with uh, with a results presentation uh, and uh, some other little tricks of the trade too. So don't hesitate to reach out if you think you need some help. Uh, now on to the. Um, Next question. I, I think it was exciting that you were able to identify a clear signal in the in the differential response stratified by the first injection. I think this is a good point for our listeners and readers and researchers. Uh, defining the subtype of patients where an intervention or risk portfolio matters most is incredibly uh, helpful. And so don't hesitate um, when you're looking at a population uh, to, to divide it up into some other groups that might be clinically relevant. And even if it's an exploratory analysis, we recently just published a paper uh, on, on cognitive behavioral therapy where the, the large signal was in the subgroup analysis. And obviously you have to treat that with um, conservatism because it wasn't the primary uh, you know, planned approach, but this is science and it's messy and you do want to generate hypotheses for a future research. So I really want to thank you for doing that. Now, many of our listeners uh, may think that arbitrary cutoffs set by, set, set by insurance companies or policymakers really does threaten the sanctity of the physician-patient relationship and their decision-making. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because this is something that is really unique to pain medicine. It's pretty rare that perioperative medicine is dealing with this. I, I've never been given a, a mandate about when, let's say, to put a continuous catheter in somebody uh, based on a response, let's say, to a single injection, because we do single injections and sometimes we follow up with catheters. That's just an example. So this is totally foreign to me and it seems terrifying, but I know it's the real world. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that, both of you, in terms of uh, is it is it something that's difficult uh, on an operational level, what do patients feel about it, so on and so forth. As Dr. Provenzano stated, um, some patients do have a difficult time understanding what exactly the procedure is going to capture. And that's not on the fault of a physician. Um, they explain the procedure very well to the patient. It's just a matter of whether the patient can synthesize that information and capture their relief based on the information that they were given. Um, for every study that we have and for every patient in the clinic, um, Dr. Provenzano takes the time to explain to the patient 
that you are supposed to capture the back pain that is associated with the relief from the procedure. Um, as Dr. Provenzano stated, I did make these callbacks often um, to patients, and you would be surprised how many patients um, either lost or misplaced the, the pain diary. Um, and then another percent of the population um, that we would call back just didn't truly understand what exactly the pain was going to capture. So that obviously makes it difficult um, from a clinical standpoint. Yeah, so those those are those are large randomized controlled trials, again, that are not this study, but when you so it's a challenge when you look at these things. So, Brian, what I would say to you is, what are we dealing with in pain medicine? We're dealing with in pain medicine a few challenges. One is that we often don't have objective findings that appropriately select patients for our treatments. So that's really challenging. Number two is that we have a field that, unfortunately, there's overutilization, right? So we have procedures that have been utilized beyond what would be recommended, they're not always used for the most appropriate reasons. So I, I can understand from an insurer standpoint, to some extent, why they're concerned about that. So they're trying to find ways to limit utilization. However, when we make these big statements about pain relief, like requiring greater than or equal to 80%, that has huge implications. And also we need to understand as a payer, when we require two blocks, that has huge implications. So what I would say is that um, I have tr I, I've been challenged by this because as you stated in acute pain, if you have in chronic pain, we know if you have greater than or equal to 30% pain reduction, patients consider themselves much improved. However, as you can see, we're requiring 50% and 80% which is even a higher standard. And it's really, it's really in many cases unrealistic. And again, I would come back to one of the other findings that when you go just from 50% to 80% cutoff, you reduce RFA by 43%. So we are denying, no doubt, a procedure to many patients that would be effective based on other studies at a 50% cutoff. So yes, I am challenged by this. I'm challenged by these cutoffs. I can understand what the insurer comes from from utilization, but as we present in this study, and this was actually a recommendation of the journal to go back and look at cost data um, for our study. We went back and looked at, okay, what is the cost of a second block? If you just went with a one block paradigm compared to a two block paradigm, what's the cost? So I'd like, if I, if you don't mind, Brian, I'd like to explain that to the listener. And actually, this is a, this is a good example of how the, the authors in the, in the editorial process can work together to grow a manuscript because this wasn't originally in it. And you were, you were, uh, uh, brave and took it on. So we really appreciate that. So yeah, go ahead. Tell, tell the, the listeners. What Zeph and I did is after we were, that was one of the reviewers requests, we went back and we said, okay, so we looked at the Medicare fee schedule. So when you do a procedure, and this is why uh, Brian talked to him on the executive committee of our Western Pennsylvania Surgical Center. I do my procedures in a surgical center. So when you do a procedure in a surgical center, there's, there's two costs. There's the physician fee, what the physician gets paid, it's the smaller of the two fees, and then what the center gets paid. And this is how a hospital gets paid too. There's the physician fee, and then there's the hospital fee. And so what we did is we went back and looked at the 2022 Medicare fee schedule for radiofrequency ablation, and individuals are gonna have both sides treated, two levels, that's, what, that's what's allowed now. And we said, what's the cost from a physician standpoint and the cost from a, uh, the ASC standpoint. We got those costs. 
And then we used the responders in our study, those proportions, and we said, okay, well, what is, if we did not have to do that second block on those patients, those large percentage of patients that had a good block on the first block, what's the cost savings? You would save at least 15%. Now that sounds like a, not that big of amount of money. I would ask you to look at the data. And then what we did is we extrapolated that. So we could figure out too, the number of traditional Medicare beneficiaries that have undergone radiofrequency ablation, their primary time, their first time in 2020. And we took that data, we took the proportions from our data based on these responders. And if you look at it, you're saving millions of dollars by only going with the one block paradigm. Large amounts of money, millions of dollars. And again, this is greater than 15% cost reduction to society. So I would step back one further thing. 80% of the time, most people got the same result. And so you had you had 10 people go through blocks where 8 out of 10 were going to have a great response. It didn't change what you're going to do. And then not only that, you have a significant burden to the healthcare system. So in their attempt to decrease utilization, which is the primary thing I think there, you actually increase the cost substantially. So you increase the cost. So we looked again, if you had the two blocks, one block, then ultimate RFA. We looked at all those cost factors and I'd ask you to look at table two in the paper and you will see you save substantial amount of money by using the one block paradigm. All right. Well, you heard it. You heard it here first. Millions and millions of dollars. So that, I think that's just a, a, a great finding. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And I always have to uh, do one little nerdy um, thing from the journal standpoint on every podcast. And so this is going to be my shameless plug uh, for the violin plot that uh, that uh, that you guys put together. I know we uh, requested that and you obliged. And I really I'm really appreciative of that. Um, so, so your figure one is a beautiful example of this. Um, and, and it's really a great example of the power of, of good visual data. So if you're a, if you're a researcher out there, just Google violin plot and learn a little bit more about it. But, um, your violin plot shows the distribution of percent relief on the second block stratified by the response to the first injection. So the silhouette of the violin, uh, represents a smooth histogram. Of, of block two percent relief from all 224 patients in the study. So it's an absolute great example of how to get all the data demonstrated uh, uh, in one figure of every single patient. The inner box plot represents the interquartile range and the median is represented by a white, um, a white dot. So it's really great, it's really impactful and it really, it really highlights your key finding. Uh, which I'd like to kind of come back to here one more time. And so that before we kind of end the, the podcast to, to make sure that that uh, y- if, if you have any additional comments about this, but basically from my take on this, and I think what I want the readers to walk away with and listeners is that basically 80% of the patients that undergo a second block, okay, uh, uh, who had a response of 50% or greater in the first block, uh, that second block is unneeded. That is, that is correct, Brian. And you can see that really nicely in those violin plots. And especially when you look at that greater than or equal to 80% relief, you can see that if, if you lived in a world, say Medicare previous to 2021 said you only needed a 50% threshold. If you had even, if you had 80%, only 3% of the population had less than 50% response in the second block. 
And you can see that so nicely in the violin plot. There's very, there's very, it's very small below that 50% threshold. The other thing that I'm really proud about this data with, with uh, Zeph and the team is that, you know, these are the results that we got. This is before Medicare um, instituted that greater than or equal to 80%. So there was no pushing for that value. We weren't pushing for that value. That's exactly what people got. And we had really strong data showing what real world data is for these blogs. Well, obviously, uh, more uh, research is needed, more information is needed uh, beyond the study. So I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on what are the key next steps. Yeah, so I think the closing thoughts that I would say, and I'd love to hear Zeph's comments, I think that I personally, and I, I would have, before I had done this study, argued for two blocks. And uh, our good friend, our co-friend Steve, and I would debate that. But now I have to say after doing this study, I agree with Steve. And I agree that the necessity of a second block for clinical practice doesn't add benefit, adds humanistic burden, and adds costs. And so with what we have right now, which is unfortunately the prognostic capability of a block because we don't have other tools, one block, in my opinion, is all that's needed. One positive block. And I would go ahead with ablation if I was allowed. Zeph, what are your thoughts? Uh, obviously, I think future studies will definitely be needed to be conducted in order to further investigate um, what our study found. Um, obviously, if we can do with a bigger population to try to see um, how that population responded as opposed to um, what our study presented, um, that would just be able to give some more clarity to the situation. Um, and then just as Dr. Premanzano said um, multiple times, the added humanistic burden um, just as a result of the second block. Um, some things you consider just be the clinical aspect. Does it really change what you're going to do? And as we saw and said multiple times, eight out of 10 people continue to have um, significant relief from the block by that um, greater than or equal to 50% relief. Um, and then as we touched on um, a little while ago, just to seeing the, um, the amount of money that was saved in the millions, if you look at figure two in our data, um, and then some other things that kind of don't get as much um, aren't discussed as much would be the, um, the additional risk to the patient um, for the additional exposure to the radiation. Uh, the patient has to take off work again and maybe miss work. Um, those are just some other things to consider. But again, um, further investigation will need to be done in order to further um, clarify and substantiate what we found in our study. Brian, one thing I would add too is that I hope during my career, that we can move beyond these prognostic selecting tools. Because, you know, I know you've been publishing the journey to information on spinal cord stimulation. All these things were plagued by these subjective measures of success. And until I think we in the pain field can find objective markers for selection, we'll, be, we'll, we'll struggle with this. And I wish, you know, back to the days when I could look at an x-ray and say, you have bad knee arthritis, you're a good candidate for a total knee replacement. I wish we had something like that in pain. And I hope that we can find better biomarkers for selecting patients besides these prognostic tests. I don't know if that will happen in my career, but I hope we find them. So Dave and Zeph, thank you so much for joining us on Wrap and Focus. And thanks to all of you uh, who listened in. So we'll uh, see you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Wrap and Focus podcast. Original music and production are done by Dan Langa. More information can be found at www.danlanga.com. 
We hope you'll join us in the future for more discussions with authors published in the Rapham Journal, and you can visit us at www.rapham.org.